Colonel Brian Kelly, his huge figure blocking off the light that filtered down the narrow corridor behind him, leaned for a moment against the locked door in agony of anxiety and helpless rage. The small oriental guard sorted through a ring of keys, searching for the one that would open the door. Colonel Kelly listened to the voices inside the room. Lightning recap. In Kurt Vonnegut's All the King's Horses, a military man is forced to play a game to save the lives of his men and his family. You've got a little time. We've got a book report. <laughs> this is Short Story Short Podcast. I am Christopher J. Garcia. Today, here with Christy Baxter. And Christy, let me first say that that is a fantastic chair you're in. Very important that you have a good chair. I'm on a couch of ever-loving joy. I, I just have to say, because I have to brag about the chair, it goes up, it goes down, it heats and it massages, pockets on either side, and two, not one, but two hidden cup holders. I pay you too much if you can afford that. <laughs> yes, I bought it for zero dollars. <laughs> yes, this uh, this couch that I'm on is a, uh, well, it's an original. It's been at this office since uh, before time. And uh, it feels like it. I had one of those in college. Mm, I had a lot of things in college, but let's not talk about my medical history. <laughs> Uh, which reminds me, history, I think this would have been a great time to read a story from one of history's greatest authors. What story should I have read? Well, if you're reading a story from one of history's greatest authors, then obviously you're reading Kurt Vonnegut. <laughs> and, <laughs> of course, and you'd be reading All the King's Horses from my favorite, favorite short story collection, Welcome to the Monkey House. And I love this story. And it actually, my personal connection with it is uh, I, when I was in the hospital getting my sodium raised, I happened to get the Welcome to the Monkey House, which I had never actually listened to. So I ended up encountering it while I was uh, on an IV. And that's a great time to read anything. Um, but this story in particular, among all the stories in that collection, which are all over the place. It's really a scattershot collection. But this story in particular was incredibly effective. And it was not just that it was dealing with sort of the ultimate high stakes game, but it is a commentary on where we were in the 50s. And it shows to a lot of connections to where we are today both socially and politically. Yes, it's definitely an interesting read from today's perspective, you know, um, close to 70 years on. And uh, especially th there's, there's characters in here from, from geopolitical standpoints, like who are in power. Uh, we have, you know, basically a, a communist dictator of, of what appears to be China, but he keeps saying Oriental. Um, 
And uh, and then a, a Russian who seems to be kind of, you know, an ambassador of sorts, uh, Barzov. And mm-hmm. so definitely you see the sort of tenuous relationships and the, you know, enmities and, and allegiances and everything on that, you know, in, in this, this threesome of, of people who are in this position. And it definitely is really interesting to look at from our current perspective. I mean, uh, we're recording this on a Friday. Just what, yesterday we did a prisoner swap with Russia for for Brittany Griner. Um, so it definitely is like nothing changes. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that one, yes, this is a product of its time, sadly, and Vonnegut was never the most idealized of, of writers. Uh, never afraid to go for a minor uh, slur here and there. <laughs> but at the time, he would probably have justified it as, well, it's what people say. Um, I would I would say in the 1950s, they wouldn't have even said that was a slur. I mean, it was the 1950s for crying out loud. They just used, you know, words that we today would, you know, gasp at we're just kind of part of the vocabulary, unfortunately. And I'm I'm not defending any sort of, you know, I'm not saying, well, it was a product of his time, but you do have to kind of acknowledge that mm-hmm. we have different uh, sensibilities now than we did a whole 70 years ago, which is natural. I hope things change in 70 years. Except for coffee. It needs to be the same all the time. Yes, 100%. Um, which I think one of the great points to this is that you have this sort of, troika of characters who are involved in a game of chess and chess as an element in science fiction is actually all over the place uh there's the 64 square madhouse a couple of the games that are mentioned in fritz Leiber, his works uh, often feature chess and one of the things that that allows is for this idea to be sort of ingrained from the beginning that each part of the story mingles with the idea of the open, the center, and the end game. And what this story actually does is it portrays the end game incredibly well because the end game is, and some people say that chess is actually the perfect Shakespearean structure, uh, that the end game happens well before the actual end of the game because it is, most of it is just denouement. There's a point where it becomes inevitable. And you definitely see that here. I've always been really intrigued by the, well, excuse me, by the parallels between chess and storytelling, because I agree, there is always a point in a story where the end becomes inevitable. Not everyone can see it. And I've also seen a lot of speculative fiction writers recommend uh using chess and and learning chess as a way of strengthening your writing uh, especially with structure and and pacing and the like so it's definitely fascinating to employ that as a you know as a plot tool i guess um you know this giant half living game of chess and then eventually some dying game of chess and also have it uh, be reflected in the structure of the story is truly, it's like really fascinating to me because it, it seems like we're seeing the story both from the inside and from the outside. 
<laughs> Absolutely. And so the idea, of course, here is that the individual chess pieces are played by humans. And when they are taken, they are killed. Which is interesting because that is a direct, directly reflected in Twin Peaks season two by Wyndham Earl, uh, who plays a game of chess uh, via, I think, the newspaper against Cooper and Pete Martell. And in a delicious sense of irony where we get one of the brothers of Raimi, I think it's Ted Raimi, uh, ends up being one of the pieces that is killed, a simple pawn. <laughs> I did not expect Twin Peaks season two to come up in this conversation, and yet here we are. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so back to the Troika, the trilogy, the Trinity. Father, son, baseball. The, uh, the thing is what we're shown is a concern that was legitimately raised a lot during the early phase of the Cold War, that it was America versus Russia and China. And that what Russia was doing was enabling China. And that enablement was the most dangerous thing that could happen to America. Hence, we had to go for containment and then Vietnam and then Vietnam War movies happened and so many strange things. And this story encapsulates that so beautifully. And today it's actually sort of in the reverse. Uh, you have Russia as the, uh, I would say the more dangerous player. <laughs> And China is actually enabling them, supposedly, uh, which is, I think, very, very viable argument you could make, particularly with regards to Ukraine. And you also have this idea that the, the strategy of the chessboard is just uh, like a, a, a microcosm of the larger strategy of geopolitical affairs. Um, and... Mm -hmm you know, sacrifices have to be made. Sometimes you have to kind of, you know, bluff a little bit. <laughs> um, and so it's interesting to see um, this, this done on a small scale and knowing that it's being reflected on a larger scale in, in society and in the world throughout during the time of the, the writing. Mm -hmm. And when we see our hero uh, make the sacrifice it becomes really, really interesting in the reactions to it. That in essence, he makes the cold calculation and it's how the other players, or player in this case, react to it. And to his play acting that he's like, oh my God, I made a huge mistake. Um, that really establish elements of this story that are sort of hidden at first. It establishes the fact that they know that this is not just a overarching, you know, you can send your armies out and do their thing. This is actually very personal. And I do love the fact that Vonnegut does hedge his bets a little bit, but at the same time, he does give a sense of humanity to the antagonist because offers to, you know, are you sure you don't want to take the move back? Um, 
and so I think that that element is really, really well done. And it's something that could have gone completely off the rails and yet didn't quite. Yeah, we see that the political become personal um, and, you know, it's on a smaller scale, but it's still everything is very fraught. I think a big key to that was pulling in uh, our, our protagonist, Colonel Kelly, his, his wife and sons. Uh, I think that's a huge part. I can see in my head another version of the story at an earlier draft written where Vonnegut maybe didn't include them because they don't seem like an automatic inclusion. Um, and, you know, you don't think of wife and kids when you think of a bunch of military men being captured. And so I can see in my head, like, I, I have no idea if this is true or not, but I can imagine somebody reading it or just, you know, Kurt Vonnegut reading it himself and thinking, you know what, we need more of the personal in here for the protagonist to put even more at stake than just these men it has to be his family as well mm -hmm. in my head that's how it happened so uh, that's my head canon where i uh actually play act kurt vonnegut's writing process <laughs> and it's a great one woman show um but i think <laughs> i think one other thing that is interesting here is that because Kelly was willing to make that sacrifice and the other general whose name I can never remember. <laughs> uh, hey, or, or wait, the uh, Yang, Ying, Ying, Ying or, or, okay. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> uh, fell for the trap that he laid that it sort of shows that it is the personal sadism that leads to the downfall of grander systems. The entire game hinges on that. And the reaction to the, to the sort of move that happens and leads to, you know, we think that we're going to get the beautiful murder of the son. Uh, but instead what we get is the potential perpetrator paying for the sin before the sin has been committed. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, we do get that. And it's an, it, another case of the political turning into the personal, because while we don't know the relationship between peeing, oh my gosh. <laughs> I didn't say it out loud until now. Oh, Kurt, 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 <laughs> Kurt. No. Yeah. <laughs> no. No, so uh, we'll call him Ying. Um, so, oh, I'm gonna need a minute. You'll have a minute. Uh, yeah, yeah. So um, Ying has this girl who is by his side and watching this whole process and seems rather distant, expressionless, she's, she's described as. And when we don't really get a great approximation of her age, but since she's called a girl, I kind of think like she's maybe only a little bit older than Colonel Kelly's sons and, you know, hence her increased empathy for them. And so it's that when it becomes personal uh, and for Colonel Kelly and Colonel Kelly uses that personal aspect to try to fool Ying. It's when that happens that it becomes more personal for Ying because his daughter's companion i don't know who this person is but she when he won't 
take the move back, freaks out and kills him. And so that's actually what really, you know, saves everything mm-hmm. when the political becomes personal. Yeah. Kills him and kills herself. If I'm. It was kind of vague. I think maybe killed herself or maybe somebody else got her. I wasn't a hundred percent sure. Okay. Yeah. Maybe I was just under the sway of a blood loss that I, that I didn't exactly catch it, but I'm fairly certain that I know she ends up dead. (laughs) Um, Yes. Yes. That really, that is the important part, the outcome here. And I think part of the reason for that is though she did the right thing, she was standing up against her system. And that's a really important aspect of this. We are seeing systems against one another. And when you are within your system, you are okay. It's when you go outside of it. And I think that's part of the thing. Ying went outside of the systematic playing of the game to do something that was symbolic and sadistic, of course, which led to the downfall. This is very much related to the idea in noir of as long as you are professional, you make it to the end and survive. But inevitably, every criminal does something unprofessional and ends up dead. That's sort of how it works. It's why uh, Mr. I think it's Mr. Pink survives to the end of, uh, of Reservoir Dogs because he was the only one who stayed professional the whole way. I, I, I want to like that movie, but <laughs> it was very, very bloody. And uh, I was supposed to be watching it with my uh, boyfriend at the time, who is now my husband. And he, as he always did during movies, fell asleep. So I watched it by myself and I didn't even want to watch it in the first place. So if he's going to fall asleep, why are we watching movies that he wants to watch? Anyhow, continuing. Uh, <laughs> it's not as good as Jackie Brown, but it's very good. <laughs> I would watch it again because I think I would appreciate it more now that I'm not like a sophomore in college. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, the secret of it is Rosebud is a sled. Oh, you know, I did not get that. I did figure out that Darth Vader is that one guy's father. That's a red herring, actually. Mr. Red Herring. Sorry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I think we've, we've dragged this out for as long as we can. It's been a little bit. <laughs> I think one of the fun things here, though, is Vonnegut writes very clean. And his prose is, it's not as stripped down as a lot of the stuff that or his big influences, like William Soroyan was one of his major influences. But it's rarely showy. And one of the things that I think makes Vonnegut so successful is that he can pare it down and get it out to the masses with a very reliable narrative form. And all of it put together with, you know, a good vocabulary that isn't super excessive something that's easy to chew that has uh, narrative concepts that allow for the hanging of all sorts of theory on, I think makes him one of the more approachable and accessible of all American writers. Agreed. Absolutely agreed. He has uh, a certain 
workmanlike aspect to his writing that when it it, it hits its peaks can actually have a, a really a real elegance to it. Um, but it's an understated elegance. It's not a showy elegance. It's 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 just kind of like a quiet. Ele- I honestly I think of him as as one of the absolute best American writers. And I think that's part of it. A big part of it was his just like almost plain spoken to the extent of being. I don't know what the word is that I want, but it really proves that I'm not no Vonnegut. <laughs> mm-hmm. Correct. <laughs> that's the best correct you've ever given me. <laughs> that's so true. <laughs> Got anything else on this one there, Christy? I cried for days when Vonnegut died. Mm. The uh, the most read issue of the drink tank ever is the Kurt Vonnegut issue I did right after he passed away. And it was used in several college classes for years after until I, I think the last time I heard from a professor was like 2017 because uh, we talked about we had Peter Sagel stuff and it was great. Oh, that's so neat. Yeah, it was uh, one of those cases of uh, we'll, we'll never see his like again, you know? No, but we can always watch Back to School, where he appears with Rodney Dangerfield. <laughs> Absolutely, and we shall. <laughs> hey, hey, Christy. Yes? What, 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 what should we read next week? Next week, we should read When It Changed by Joanna Russ. Excellent. Our first rust story. We're putting We're on a rust belt. <laughs> <laughs> ah, well, then, until then, this ever shall be short story. Short podcast slash book report. <laughs> well done. <laughs>